little bit of an introduction and then um, and then go into this, the 97th Psalm. And like Donnie said, it is, it, on one hand, I thought it was ironic that Donnie did say that. It's such an easy psalm, you just let it read, because this was a difficult psalm all week to study. <laughs> I did not... Uh, I did not get this one right away. It was probably not until Thursday or so that I, uh, I was like, oh, that's, that's what that means. That's, that's what it's all about. So I was uh, trusting that that light bulb moment would finally come. And uh, I'll let you be the judge of whether or not it actually came all the way or if it's kind of still flickering as we get through it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to guide us in his word as well as open our eyes and behold the things that he has for us. Our Father, we do thank you for your words. We, we lift them up and, and treasure them because we recognize that they're your words. They're not the words about you uh, that it came from men, that they're words about you from yourself. They're the words that have told us about a holy God and a sinful people and a God who loves, cares, and gave so that sinful people might be adopted, and might be brought into his family, might be redeemed, saved, justified. We might be able to come into your presence. We might be able to come into fellowship, have a real relationship with you. We thank you that these words are words of good news and hope. Help us, please, as we study them, to see them, and to see, hear the message that is, that is contained in, in this psalm. Help us as we study to see things that, uh, that we need to do as well as to know. Help us to see Christ. And may we, may we be obedient to the call. We pray this because of Christ, for his sake. Amen. In Exodus 16... I'm sorry, Exodus 19. We will, I'll read a little bit of it, but you don't need to turn there unless you'd like to later on. But in Exodus 19, we find Israel standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And they are waiting for God to come descend upon it. Exodus 19, of course, comes right before Exodus 20. And if you know your Old Testament, Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. This is what would happen. Uh, the, the people, not, not necessarily waiting for the Ten Commandments. I don't know that they knew what was coming as much. But in verse number 9, it says, God told Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Then verse 16 goes on. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. and They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now my Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, 
God answered him in thunder. This is the manifestation of God's awesome power and his majesty and veiled glory. Even though it's so uh, vivid, it is still veiled in how in God's glory. And all of this is on display for the people of Israel. And I want you to recognize that it terrified them. This was a scary time for them so much so that after, I read this passage to you last Sunday, but in Exodus 20, after the, the Ten Commandments are given, it says in verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. This is how they reacted to a God who speaks in thunder and comes and makes the mountains smoke. This reaction uh, matches Isaiah's in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his glory filled the temple. And Isaiah looked at all of these things. He says that the, the foundations of the doorway shook. Tremble, just like Mount Sinai trembled in Exodus 19. Isaiah wrote that the temple filled with smoke, just as Mount Sinai resembles a smoking furnace. Just like Israel trembles in fear, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me. He says, I'm ruined, I'm lost, I'm undone. Because, he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this was a problem because he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I am dwelling among a people of unclean lips. It's typically understood throughout the scriptures that if a man were to see a holy God, he would die. Uh, God said, no man can see me and live. Judges 13, when the angel of the Lord told Manoah uh, that he was going to have a son who would later be called Samson, Manoah told his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. This fear, this reaction of trembling and trepidation in the presence of God or simply adhering the voice of God uh, is due to the holiness of God. And that's really what Psalm 97 is dealing with. Our worship in regard to the holiness of God. In the last several Sundays, we've been looking at a few of the Psalms that deal with worshiping God. And Psalm 97 is no different. Though the word itself is only used uh, sparingly, uh, we see that this is all about worshiping God in light of His holiness. Last Sunday we were in Psalm 96, and we, if you recall, verse number 9 says that we're commanded to worship the Lord in the splendor or in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 97 continues this theme of holiness by describing first the holy God that we're worshiping and then it warns us against false worship and then it calls us to who do worship the true God to pursue after righteousness so in a, in a real short sentence summary Psalm 97 demonstrates how the holiness of God affects the way that we worship him so I want you to keep that in mind as we read through that but before we go into it, I want to make sure we all understand what holiness really is. What is the holiness of God? We use that word a lot. We hear it used a lot. We read it uh, so much in the Scriptures. What exactly is holiness? Or what does it really mean 
to be holy. We read several times throughout the Scriptures, God is holy. We read that we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. What does that really mean, to be holy? Well, in Leviticus 10.10, it tells us that the opposite of holiness is commonness or something that is profane, something that is just for general use. It's just a normal, everyday thing. The first time that we read about the word holy is is in creation, in Genesis chapter 2, verse number 3, when God uh, made the seventh day a holy day by resting there. And, And on that day, He set it apart or sanctified it from all of the other six days uh, to be different and to be devoted to his purpose. It says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Then in the second time that we read the word holy is not until we get to the book of Exodus in chapter 3 when God uh, visited Moses in the burning bush and he told Moses in, in chapter 3 verse 5 to take off his shoes because the ground he was standing on was holy ground. The ground was just like every other bit of ground, but because God had now visited that place, it was now a holy piece of ground. So to be holy, and there's a lot of ways that we can we can define it, but just for our purposes this morning, to be holy means to be completely set apart, completely different from everything else. And so when we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is completely different than anything else. There's nothing like God. We cannot imagine God apart from what He has told us about Himself because there's nothing like Him to describe. Sometimes people try to explain what God is and they say, well, He's like, it's like water and fire and ice. But that's not God. That's not even like God. It's not, it's not these different pieces of these, these images. The only way that we even know about God is because God has graciously said, here's who I am. And all that we know is what he has actually said of himself. And it's really hard for us to imagine it because we are, we live in a body and we, we operate by minds that need to understand by making comparisons. We need to see something and then be able to say, it's like this. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're going to try a new food, how do you, uh, how does someone explain to you what that food tastes like. <laughs> they describe it by other things that you might have had before. It tastes a little sweet. It tastes a little sour. This is hot. It's kind of crunchy like chips or it's soft like, uh, uh, like you know, mush or whatever. And then we begin to paint a picture of what this might taste like and then we experience it for ourselves. And then we describe it in the same way. We use other experiences to describe this particular thing. But when something is holy, like God, we don't have that. We can't say, well, it's like this or it's like this. He's something completely other than anything that we have to compare him to. And the Bible tells us that God alone is holy, which makes sense because to be holy means you're completely different. And if three or four things are completely different, then they're not like everything else. God alone is holy, 1 Samuel 2.2. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. At the end of the Bible, Revelation 15, uh, it says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. I thought it might be helpful to at least share one or two uh, other definitions of 
holiness uh, from other people that have, have, are much better with words than I am. One writer uh, says that the terminology of holiness is used to signify that God is holy other, holy as in W-H-O-L-E, holy other, distinct and separate from everything that he has made and different from the gods of human imagination. Now, another way that we could describe the holiness of God is to say that God is completely other. He's completely something different than anything and everything else. All creation is one thing, but God is all by himself. He is in a category all alone. God is holy. So in Psalm 97, when we read that the, about the holiness of God, I want you to notice how the holiness of God um, affects how God rules and reigns. I want you to see how it affects the way that man sees him. It affects the way that God interacts with man. And it affects how man responds to God in worship. Now in some ways, Psalm 97 uh, carries the same theme as Psalm 96 and 98. On Wednesday night, we were looking at this psalm and, and uh, commenting on uh, there are a lot of similarities between 96 and 98. We've already looked at both of those. You'll remember when we looked at Psalm 96 and 98, it was the basis for which Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. It's about the Lord has come and there's joy and there's, uh, there's rejoicing because of the good things that come because God is now in charge. But Psalm 97 takes it a little differently. Yes, there are some similar points, but Psalm 97 has a much darker theme to it. You'll see as we go through this. In some ways it carries the theme, but Psalm 96, you could say, is kind of coming from the Christian's perspective. Focusing on the hope and the anticipation of God who comes. But Psalm 97 takes the, uh, looks at the plight of God's enemies. At what those who do not worship Him will see God as. And it talks about their shame and their certain judgment. One, one writer uh, was helpful to say, if we, if we look at Psalm 96 like the homecoming of a beloved master, then we can look at Psalm 97 as the awesome approach of a conqueror. And so as we meditate on this psalm, and I'm going to read it once more just this week, I want to explain what, to, what we want to be looking for, and then we'll read through it, and then we will uh, we'll, we'll consider it, meditate on it. I want you to notice that God is holy, and how God's holy character is described to us, and how it affects everything about Him. We'll see that in verses 1-6. through six. Then in verses 7-9, through nine, we're going to see how God is greater than all other gods and how mankind is, uh, will respond to Him. And finally, in verses 10-12, through 12, we'll see how the greatness and the holiness of God should lead us to pursue righteousness. It will affect the way that we worship. So let's look at Psalm 97 and listen to what God has said. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. 
and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Did you recognize the words of verse number 9 there? We sang it last Sunday. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. And then we say, I exalt thee. I exalt thee. When we sing that song, we're singing Scripture back to him. We'll come to that in a moment. Notice in the first six verses, the God is the holy king. I want you to notice how God's holiness is described to us here. And it starts off by saying, He reigns. Remember when we see the word Lord in all capital letters, we're, this is the English rendering of the name of God, not simply the title of God, as we see later on with the, a, a regular spelling of it. But here, Yahweh reigns. He is the King. He rules and He reigns. Therefore, let the whole earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Why? Because what better ruler can there be than God Himself? God is in charge, and He rules, and He reigns. So shout for joy. This is a very good thing. And, and let this joyous news spread to the farthest outposts of the world. That's what it means about the, the coastlands, these islands, these faraway places that don't necessarily hear all of the happenings of the mainland. Let them hear about it and be glad. Everybody needs to hear this, that God reigns. Then the psalmist begins to describe this God who reigns. Verse number 2, we see that clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Remember the thick clouds on Mount Sinai as the people were standing at the base of the mountain and it was engulfed in clouds and thick smoke. This is due to God's holy character. He is unapproachably holy. We can't see Him. We can't come near to Him. He is obscured by clouds and darkness so that sinful man cannot see or know or even understand or approach Him. You think about the words that we sing in the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. I think it's the second verse. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eyes of sinful men thy glory may not see because of these clouds. Then we see that uh, this, this, this holy God, now uh, verse, and verse number 2 as well, the righteousness and justice are the foundation of this holy God's reign. He sits on a throne that is founded on righteousness and justice. Uh, Alec Mateer, uh, a commentator, wrote that righteousness is holiness that is embodied in right principles and justice is holiness that is expressed in right decisions and actions. This is how our God rules. He rules with righteousness, what is right, and justice. And this holiness is affected that way, which means that when God rules and reigns, He rules and reigns very differently than anybody else would ever reign. There have been many great kings throughout 
human history. Many rulers. Many bad ones too. They're all a fade in comparison to the, the rule and the righteous reign that God has. He operates by righteous and just decrees. Then we look at verse number 3 and we see that fire goes out before Him. Consumes His enemies. Those who oppose Him. Throughout the Scriptures, fire is used to, to show us the judgment that comes from God or from in other places. But this is the judgment of God. Going out and consuming all of those who would be against Him. And notice that it is effective. It doesn't miss anybody. It is irresistible and all-consuming because it says it burns up His adversaries all around. Missing no one. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. Because God's holy reign, remember, His holiness affects the way that He rules and reigns. And because God's reign is in righteousness and in justice, then that demands judgment of sin. We see then His lightning goes out and lights up the whole world. Now consider that for a moment. Uh, just a few, a few weeks ago, maybe it was uh, two weeks ago, or uh, in the middle of the night, there was some thunder and lightning. Does anybody remember that? Did you, did you hear that? I, I woke up like maybe 10 seconds before it happened, and uh, I, I saw it. You know, the, My room was all of a sudden filled with light, and then uh, I heard the thunder. But if I were to ask you, you might have seen it if you were awake. But if I were to call someone across the country and say, hey, did you see that lightning last night? They wouldn't know what I'm talking about because the lightning that fills up my sky doesn't necessarily fill up the entire sky. But notice what it says here in verse 3. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees it. This is lightning unlike we've seen before. This is lightning that everybody sees. This lightning... The bright radiance of His coming is seen by all people. It's not an isolated event. All people see and see Him. And now a darkened world both sees a holy God and is seen by a holy God. And they're terrified, resulting in fear and trembling. Psalm 104 says that God looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains. And they smoke. Look at verse 5 when it talks about the mountains. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. Even the mountains themselves offer no place for the people to take refuge. Because they're afraid of this God. This God does not come happy and, 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 and singing a, a jolly tune. He's, he's coming in smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and, and in, in, uh, in fear is how man responds. But the mountains offer no place of refuge. They offer no place to hide from this righteous King. And this is a picture of the coming judgment on the world. You may be familiar with the the words of Revelation 6. When people call out to the mountains to fall on them and cover them and so hide them from the judgment of 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 God. They say, it says that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and, tr- and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? And actually, several times in Scripture, we read of people who will call out to the rocks and hills and mountains and say, fall on us. Put us out of our misery. We would rather die by an avalanche, if it were, than to to face this holy God. But the mountains provide no comfort, no refuge, no escape from God's hand of judgment. Because the mountains themselves are at the will of the Lord of all the earth. And we look at verse 6 and we see that the heavens declare the righteousness of this this glorious and holy God. The whole earth sees, in verse 6, the heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. Psalm 98 says that He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. The revelation of His righteousness which is His righteous rule from verse number 2, is this glory that is revealed now to us. This is our God. This is a holy, righteous God and King. So now we look at verses 7-9 through and notice how people respond to this God. This God who comes in clouds and fire and lightning. Some with great joy and some with great shame. Look at verse number 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. So we have first, we have these worshipers of false gods. These are people who, as in verse 90, uh, Psalm 96, that all of the, uh, the, the gods of the, of the nations, of the peoples, are worthless idols. They're nothings and nobodies. The prophet Habakkuk wrote, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Here are people who have worshipped false gods. They have boasted in these false gods. They, they trust in it. They, the way that we boast in our God and say our God will take care of us. Our God will provide. Our God will meet our needs. Our God will save us. They boast in their gods. But they'll be put to shame. Because their gods have eyes we cannot see, ears they cannot hear, hands and feet that they cannot touch or move. Ashamed and confounded because they boasted in a worthless idol. Because, as we see at the end of verse 7, their God is subject to the one true God. Worship Him, O you gods. It's not a call to the people, to the worshipers, but to the gods themselves. And that's the shameful part in it. And that the God that you worship is now being called to fall down before the one true God. And how ashamed they will be at that that moment. But then secondly, we see that the the, the second uh, response is from the, the daughters of Zion or the daughters of Judah. Zion, the city of God. Here's the heavens declare God's glory, and Zion is glad. 
All of God's people rejoice because of the righteous judgment that God brings. That God is setting everything right. Because the holy God is the most high God. And He's exalted far above all other gods. This is why the children of Zion rejoice. This is why we sing. Because this is our God. Because in Christ, we are the children of Zion. We are among those who sing. The Lord are high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Therefore, I exalt thee. I worship you, Almighty God. There's none like you. I wonder what the thought of the coming of the Most High God to earth in fiery judgment, and in lightning, and in thunder, and in clouds and thick darkness. I wonder what that does to each of us. What does that do to you? What thought comes to your mind? Is there fear? Is there, is there a, a, a trembling of a God who will come and judge what you have done? Is there a fear? Is there, will there result in shame? If God were to come today in, in the way that is described to us in the first part of Psalm 97, would you respond with fear? Would your response be shame for what you have done? For the false gods that you have served? Psalm 31 says, In you, Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. It says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Friend, if you don't know Christ, this will be your response when He comes. You say, I don't believe those things. You will. Or do we respond with joy and gladness as do the children of Zion? If you're a a part of the city of Zion, then joy and gladness should be your response because as, as it said, uh, Psalm 34, those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. But also our response should be to pursue after righteousness. If you look at the last three verses in verse number 10. And notice how the holiness of God not only produces joy within our hearts as Christians, as, as children of Zion, but also it moves us to pursue after righteousness. And the way that it's written here, O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. It's actually lovers of the Lord, lovers of God, hate evil. Verse number 10. Verse number 12, it tells us to rejoice in Him and to give thanks. And in between we have the reasons because His coming is sure. He hasn't come yet, but He will. And it is certain. And the victory has already been won. Because in verse 10, He preserves the souls of His righteous people. He delivers them from wicked hands. Verse 11, because light and joy are sown for you. And the harvest is certain. Those of you who are involved in planting, or you know anything about how plants work, Light is sown means that something is being put into the ground 
and it doesn't come right away, but it will. And when you plant something in the planting season, you can be certain that in the harvest season, the thing that you planted will produce, will come up. And that's what is saying here that you don't sow the light. It is sown for you. And the joy is not sown by you, but for you who worship God, who are righteous, who are the ones of Zion. And there's and, and within there is a hope that, as the psalmist says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And for this, we are called to uh, live God while we wait on these things. The deliverance that's promised to us in verse 10 has not happened. The preservation uh, means that there, we're, we're kind of in the midst of the dangerous time. But He is coming. And He will preserve. And He will save. And He will deliver. This holy God is coming to rule and to reign as the righteous, holy King. And when He comes to earth, he will judge it in righteousness and faithfulness and judgment. So we are given this news for at least two reasons. Ultimately, so that we will turn to Him. If you are a worshiper of God, of a false God, then you are given this news uh, in the Scriptures and even this morning, so that you might turn from those false gods, that we would turn to the one true God and to the Most High God, the Holy God, turn to Him in the face of Jesus Christ. We're called to worship this God, not ourselves, not the gods of our imaginations or the gods of our hands, but to worship the God who made us by His own Word. Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we, we read about Israel at the very beginning. And I want to finish with that, with that thought in mind from the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews, and I would ask that you turn to it if you can get to there quickly. The writer of Hebrews recalls the events of Exodus 19, and he talks uh, to us about that day at Mount Sinai. But from a Christian experience, and how it's different than those people in Exodus 19. Exodus, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, and beginning in verse number 18, he says, For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We on this side of the cross don't stand at a mountain that can be touched to worship God. We have come to Mount Zion, it says. 
We have come to God Himself. We have come to Jesus, who mediates this new covenant. And it's through Him we worship. It's through Him we see the Holy God. It's through Him we are not afraid of the coming judgment. It's through Him that we rejoice in this coming God, the King. We look down at verse number 28. And the writer says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The God of Psalm 97 is a holy God. The God of the Bible is a holy and righteous, just God. And He calls us to worship Him and Him alone. Not the gods of our imaginations, not the gods of our hands, not the gods of ourselves. And those who will not obey Him will be judged. Those who hear the call, repent, turn to Christ, turn to God in Christ, will not be ashamed. Instead, they will be glad. They will rejoice. They will be saved. He calls us to repent, to worship Him who is holy and exalted, far above all gods. So, Hebrews 12, 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking.